Chapter One of Diana. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bridget Gage. Diana by Susan Warner. Chapter One The Sewing Society. I am thinking of a little brown house somewhere in the wilds of New England. I wish I could make my readers see it as it was one June afternoon some years ago. Not for anything very remarkable about it. There are thousands of such houses scattered among our hills and valleys. Nevertheless, one understands any life story the better for knowing amid what sort of scenes it was unfolded. Moreover, such a place is one of the pleasant things in the world to look at, as I judge. This was a small house, with its gable end to the road, and a lean to at the back, over which the long roof sloped down picturesquely. It was weather painted. That was all, of a soft dark gray now, that harmonized well enough with the gayer colors of meadows and trees, and two superb elms of New England's own stood beside it and hung over it, enfolding and sheltering the little old house as it were, with their arms of strength and beauty. Those trees would have dignified anything. One of them, of the more rare weeping variety, drooped over the door of the lean-to, shading it protectingly. And hiding with its long pendant branches the hard and stiff lines of the building, so the green draped the gray, until in the soft mingling of hues, the light play of sunshine and shadow, it seemed as if the smartness of paint upon the old weather boarding would have been an intrusion, and not an advantage. In front of the house was a little space given to flowers, at least there were some irregular patches and borders where balsams and hollyhocks and pinks and marigolds made a spot of light coloring, with one or two luxuriantly growing blush roses, untrained and wandering, bearing a wealth of sweetness on their long swaying branches. There was that spot of color. All around and beyond lay meadows, orchards, and cultivated fields. Till at no great distance the ground became broken, and rose into a wilderness of hills mounting higher and higher. In spots these also showed cultivation, for the most part they were covered with green woods in the depth of June foliage. The soft, varied, hilly outline filled the whole circuit of the horizon. Within the nearer circuit of the hills, the little gray house sat alone, with only one single exception. At the edge of the meadowland. Half hid behind the spur of a hill, stood another gray farmhouse. It might have been half a mile off. People accustomed to a more densely populated country would call the situation lonesome. Solitary it was. But nature had shaken down her handful of treasures over the place. Art had never so much as looked that way. However, we can do without art on a June afternoon. The door of the lean-to looked towards the road. And so made a kind of front door to the kitchen which was within. The door sill was raised a single step above the rough old gray stone which did duty before it, and sitting on the doorstep, in the shadow and sunlight which came through the elm branches and fell over her this June afternoon, was the person whose life story I am going to try to tell. She sat there as one at home, and in the leisure of one who had done her work, with arms crossed upon her bosom. And an air of almost languid quiet upon her face. The afternoon was quiet, inspiring. Genial warm sunshine filled the fields and grew hazy in the depth of the hills. 
the long hanging elm branches were still sunlight and shadow beneath slept in each other's arms soft breaths of air too faint to move the elms came nevertheless with reminders and suggestions of all sorts of sweetness from the leaf buds of the woods from the fresh turf of the meadows from a thousand hidden flowers and ferns at work in their secret laboratories distilling a thousand perfumes mingled and untraceable now and then the breath of the roses was quite distinguishable and from fields further off the delicious scent of new hay it was just the time of day when the birds do not sing and the watcher at the door seemed to be in their condition she was a young woman full-grown but young her dress was the common print working dress of a farmer's daughter with a spot or two of wet upon her apron showing that she had been busy as her dress suggested her sleeves were still rolled up above her elbows leaving the crossed arms full in view and if there is character in faces so there is in arms and everybody knows there is in hands these arms were after the model of the typical woman's arm not chubby and round and fat but moulded with beautiful contour showing muscular form and power with the blue veins here and there marking the clear delicate skin only look at the arm without even seeing the face and you would feel there was nervous energy and power of will no weak flabby undecided action would ever come of it the wrist was tapering enough and the hand perfectly shaped like the arm not quite so white the face you could not read it at once possibly not till it had seen a few more years it was very reposeful this afternoon yet the brow and the head bore tokens of the power you would expect they were very fine and the eyes under the straight brow were full and beautiful a deep blue-gray changing and darkening at times but the mouth and lower part of the face was as sweet and mobile as three years old playing as innocently and readily upon every occasion nothing had fixed those lovely lines the combination made it a singular face and of course very handsome but it looked very unconscious of that fact within the kitchen another woman was stepping about actively and now and then cast an unsatisfied look at the door finally came to a stop in the middle of the floor to speak what are you sitting there for diana nothing that i know of if i was sitting there for nothing seems to me i'd get up and go somewheres else where said the beauty languidly anywhere goodness it makes me feel as if nothing would ever get done to see you sitting there so it's all done mother what everything have you got out the pink china yes is your cake made yes mother you saw me do it i didn't see you bakin it though well it is done did it raise light and puffy beautiful and didn't get burned only the least bit in the corner no harm have you cut the cheese and shivered the beef all done then i think you had better go and dress yourself there's plenty of time nobody can be here for two hours yet i wouldn't sit and do nothing if i was you why not mother when there is really nothing to do i don't believe in no such minutes for my part they never come to me look at what i've done to-day now there was first the lighting the fire and getting breakfast then i washed up and righted the kitchen and set on the dinner then i churned and brought the butter and worked that then there was the dairy things then i've been in the garden and picked four quarts of if and ons for pickles got em all down in brine too 
Then I made out my bread, and made biscuits for tea, and got dinner, and eat it, and cleared it away, and boiled a ham. Not since dinner, mother. Took it out, and that, and got all my pots and kettles put away, and picked over all that lot of berries. I think I'd make preserves of em, Diana. When folks come to sewing meeting for the missionaries, they needn't have all creation to eat, seems to me. They don't sew no better for it. I believe in fasting, once in a while. What for? What for? Why, to keep down people's stomach. Take off a slice of their pride. Mother, do you think eating and people's pride have anything to do with each other? I guess I do. I tell you, fasting is as good as a whipping to take down a child's stomach. Let em get real thin and empty, and they'll come down and be as meek as Moses. Folks ain't different from children. You never tried that with me, mother, said Diana, half laughing. Your father always let you have your own way. I could a managed you, I guess, but your father and you was too much at once. Come, Diana, do. Get up and go off and get dressed, or something. But she sat still, letting the soft June air woo her, and the sense of flower and field hold some subtle communion with her. There was a certain hidden harmony between her and them, and yet they stirred her somehow uneasily. I wonder, she said after a few moments' silence, what a nobleman's park is like. The mother stood still again in the middle of the kitchen. A park? Yes, it must be something beautiful, and yet I cannot think how it could be prettier than this. Then what? said her mother impatiently. Just all this, all this country, and the hayfields, and the cornfields, and the hills. A park, her mother repeated. I saw a park once, when I was down to New York. You wouldn't want to see it twice. A homely little mite of a green yard, with a big white house in the middle of it. And homely enough that was, too. It might do very well for the city folks, but the land knows I'd be sorry enough to live there. What's put in parks in your head? But the daughter did not answer, and the mother stood still and looked at her, with perhaps an inscrutable bit of pride and delight behind her hard features. It never came out. Diana, do you calculate to be ready for the sewin' meetin'? Yes, mother. Since they must come, we may as well make em welcome, and they won't think it, if you meet em in your kitchen dress. Is the new minister comin', do you suppose? I don't know if anybody has told him. Somebody had ought to. It won't be much of a meetin' without the minister, and it'd give him a good chance to get acquainted. Mr. Hardenberg used to like to come. The new man doesn't look much like Mr. Hardenberg. It'll be a savin' in biscuits if he ain't. I used to like to see Mr. Hardenberg eat, mother. I hain't no objection when I don't have the biscuits to make. Diana, you baked a pan of them biscuits too brown. Now you must look out when you put em up to warm, or they'll be more'n crisp. Everybody else has them cold, mother. They won't at my house. It's just to save trouble, and there ain't a lazy hair in me. You ought to know by this time. But I thought you were for taking down people's pride, and keeping the sewing society low. And here are hot biscuits and all sorts of things, said Diana, getting up from her seat at last. The cream'll be in the little red pitcher, so mind you don't go and take the green one. And do be off, child, and fix yourself, for it'll be a while yet before I'm ready, and there'll be nobody to see folks when they come. Diana went off slowly upstairs to her own room. There were but two, one on each side of the little landing-place, at the head of the stair, and she and her mother divided the floor between them. 
Diana's room was not what one would have expected from the promise of all the rest of the house. That was simple enough, as the dwelling of a small farmer would be, and much like the other farmhouses of the region. But Diana's room, a little one it was, had one side filled with bookshelves, and on the bookshelves was a dark array of solid and ponderous volumes. A table under the front window held one or two that were apparently in present use. The rest of the room displayed the more usual fittings and surroundings of a maiden's life. Only in their essentials, however, no luxury was there. The little chest of drawers, covered with a white cloth, held a brush and comb, and supported a tiny looking-glass, small paraphernalia of vanity. No essences or perfumes or powders, no curling sticks or crimping pins, no rats or cats, cushions or frames, or skeletons of any sort, were there for the help of the rustic beauty, and neither did she need them. So you would have said if you had seen her when her toilette was done. The soft outlines of her figure were neither helped nor hidden by any artificial contrivances. Her abundant dark hair was in smooth bands, and a luxuriant coil at the back of her head, woman's natural crown, and she looked nature-crowned when she had finished her work. Just because nature had done so much for her, and she had let nature alone, and because, furthermore, Diana did not know, or at least did not think about her beauty. When she was in order, and it did not take long, she placed herself at the table under the window before noticed, and opening a book that lay ready, forgot, I dare say, all about the sewing-meeting, till the slow grating of wheels at the gate brought her back to present realities, and she went downstairs. There was a little old green wagon before the house, with an old horse and two women, one of whom had got down and was tying the horse's head to the fence. "'Are you afraid he will run away?' said the voice of Diana gaily from the garden. "'Massy, no, but he might hitch round somewheres, you know, and get himself into trouble. Thank ye. I am always thankful and glad when I get safe out of this wagon.' So spoke the elder lady, descending with Diana's help and a great deal of circumlocation from her perch in the vehicle. And then they went into the bright parlour, where windows and doors stood open, and chairs had been brought in, ready to accommodate all who might come. "'It's kind of sultry,' said the same lady, wiping her face. "'I declare these ellums of yourn do cast an elegant shatter. "'It ellies sort of hampers me to drive, "'and I don't feel free till I can let the reins fall. "'That's how I come to be so heated.' "'Dear me, you do excel in notions,' she exclaimed, "'as Diana presented some glasses of cool water with raspberry vinegar. "'Ain't that wonderful coolin?' "'Will the minister come to this meeting, Diana?' asked the other woman. "'He'd come if he'd knowed he could get anything like this,' said the other, smacking her lips and sipping her glass slowly. And then came in her hostess. If Mrs. Starling was hard-favored, it cannot be denied that she had a certain style about her. Some ugly people do. Country style, no doubt. But these things are relative, and in a smart black silk, with sheer muslin neckerchief, and a close-fitting little cap. Her natural self-possession and self-assertion were very well set off. Very different from Diana's calm grace and simplicity. The mother and daughter were alike in nothing beyond the fact that each had character. Perhaps that is a common fact in such a region and neighborhood. For many of the ladies who now came thronging in to the meeting looked as if they might justly lay claim to so much praise. The room filled up, Thimbles and housewives came out of pockets, 
Work was produced from baskets and bags, and tongues went like mill-clappers. They put the June afternoon out of countenance. Mrs. Barry, the good lady who had arrived first, took out her knitting, and in a corner went over to her neighbor all the incidents of her drive, the weather, the getting out of the wagon, the elm-tree shadow, and the raspberry vinegar. Mrs. Carpenter, a well-to-do farmer's wife, gave the details of her dairy misfortunes and success to her companion on the next seat. Mrs. Flandon discussed missions. Mrs. Bell told how the family of Mr. Hardenberg had got away on their journey to their new place of abode. "'I always liked Mr. Hardenberg,' said Mrs. Carpenter. "'He had a real good wife,' remarked Mrs. Gunn, the storekeeper's sister, and that goes a great way. Mrs. Hardenberg was a right-down good woman.' "'But you was speaking o' Mr. Hardenberg, the dominie,' said Mrs. Salter. "'He was a man as there weren't much harm in, I've always said. "'Tain't a man's fault if he can't make his sermons interestin', I suppose.' "'Mr. Hardenberg preached real good sermons now, always seemed to me,' rejoined Mrs. Carpenter. "'He meant right, that's what he did.' "'That's so,' chimed in Mrs. Mansfield, a rich farmer in her own person." "'There was an owl up in one of our elm-trees one night,' began Mrs. Starling. "'Do tell! So nice that!' said Mrs. Barry from her corner. "'And I took up Josiah's gun and meant to shoot him, but I didn't.' "'He was awful tiresome, there!' exclaimed Mrs. Boddington. "'What's the use of pretendin' he warn't? "'Nobody couldn't mind what his sermons was about. "'I don't believe as he knew himself. "'Now a minister had ought to know what he means, "'whether anyone else does or not.' "'and I like a minister that makes me know what he means.' "'Why, Mrs. Boddington,' said Mrs. Flandon, "'I didn't know as you cared anything about religion, one way or another.' "'I've got to go to church, Mrs. Flandon, "'and I'd a little rather be kept awake while I'm there without pinching my fingers. "'I'd prefer it.' "'Why, has anybody got to go to church that doesn't want to go?' inquired Diana. "'But that was like a shell let off in the midst of the sewing-circle.' "'Hear that now,' said Mrs. Boddington. "'Ain't that a rouser?' Mrs. Boddington was a sort of a cousin, and liked the fun. She lived in the one farmhouse in sight of Mrs. Starling's. "'She don't mean it,' said Mrs. Mansfield. "'Trust Di Starling for meaning whatever she says,' returned the other. "'You and I mayn't understand it, but that's all one, you know.' "'But what do she mean?' said Mrs. Salter. "'Yes, what's the use o' havin' a church, ef folks ain't goin' to it?' said Mrs. Carpenter. "'No,' said Diana, laughing. "'I only asked why any one must go, if he don't want to. Where's the must?' "'When we had good Mr. Hardenberg, for example,' chimed in Mrs. Boddington, who was as loggy as he could be, good old soul, and put us all to sleep, or to wishin' we could. My, hain't I eaten quarts of dill in the course of the summer, trying to keep myself respectably awake and considerin' of what was goin' on?' Di says, why must anyone eat all that dill that doesn't want to? Cloves is better, suggested Mrs. Gunn. Some laughed at this. Others looked portentously grave. It's just one of Di's nonsense speeches, said her mother. What they mean, I'm sure I don't know. She reads too many books to be just like other folks. But the books were written by other folks, mother. La, some sort, child. Not our sort, I guess. Hain't Di never learned her catechism? inquired Mrs. Flandon. "'Is there anything about going to church in it?' asked the girl. "'There's most all sorts of good things in it,' answered vaguely Mrs. Flandon, who was afraid of committing herself. 
I thought Di might ha' learned there something about such a thing as we call duty. That's so, said Mrs. Mansfield. Just what I am asking about, said Di, that's the thing. Why is it duty, to go to church when one don't want to go? Well, I'm sure it was time we had a new minister, said Mrs. Salter, and I'm glad he's come. If he's no better than old Mr. Hardenberg, it'll take us a spell to find it out, and that'll be so much gained. He don't look like him, anyway. He is different, ain't he? assented Mrs. Boddington. If we wanted a change, we've got it. How did you all like his sermon last Sabbath? He was very quiet, said Mrs. Flandin. I like that, said Diana. When a man roars at me, I never can tell what he is saying. He seemed to kind of know his own mind, said Mrs. Salter. I thought he'd got an astonishing knowledge of things in the town, for the time he's had, said Mrs. Mansfield. I wished he had a family, remarked Miss Gunn. That's all I've got agin him. I think a minister had always ought to have a family. He will. Let him alone a while, said Mrs. Boddington. Time enough. Who have we got in town that would do for him? The fruitful topic of debate and discussion here started. Lasted the ladies for some time. Talk and business got full under way. Scissors and speeches, clipping and chattering, knitting and the interminable yarn of small talk. The affairs, sickness and health of every family in the neighborhood, with a large discussion of character and prospects by the way, going back to former history and antecedents, and forward to future probable consequences and results. Nuts of society, sweet confections of conversation, of various and changing flavor, suiting all palates, and warranted never to cloy. Then there were farm prospects and doings also, with household matters, very interesting to the good ladies, who all had life interest in them, and the hours moved on prosperously. Here a rocking chair tipped gently back and forward, in harmony with the quiet business enjoyment of its occupant, and there a pair of heels, stretched out to the farthest limit of their corresponding members, with toes squarely elevated in the air, testified to the restful condition of another individual of the party. See a pair of toes in the air, and the heels as nearly as possible straight under them, one tucked up on the other, and you may be sure the person they belong to feels comfortable, physically. And Mrs. Starling in a corner, in her quiet state and black silk gown, was as contented as an old hen that sees all her chickens prosperously scratching for themselves. And the June afternoon breathed in at the window, and upon all those busy talkers, and nobody knew that it was June. So things went, until Diana left them to put the finishing touches of readiness to the tea-table. Her going was noticed by some of the assembly, and taken as a preparatory note of the coming entertainment, always sure to be worth having and coming for in Mrs. Starling's house. Needles and tongues took a fresh stir. "'Miss Starling, are we going to have the minister?' somebody asked. "'I don't know, as anybody has told him, Miss Manfield. "'Won't seem like a meetin' if we don't have him.' "'He's gone down to Elmfield,' said Miss Gunn. "'He went down along in the forenoon sometime. "'Gone to see his cousin, I suppose.' "'They've got their young soldier home to Elmfield,' said Miss Barry. "'I spect they're dreadful sot up about it.' "'They don't want that,' said Mrs. Boddington. "'The Knowltons always did carry their heads pretty well up, in the best of times. "'And now Evans got home. I s'pose there'll be no holdin' em in. "'There ain't, I guess, by the looks.' "'What'll he do now? Stay to home and help his grandther?' 
"'La, no. He's home just for a visit. He's got through his education at the military academy, and now he's an officer, out in the world. But he'll have to go somewhere and do his work.' "'I wonder what work they'll have to do,' said Mrs. Salter. "'There ain't nobody to fight now, is there?' "'Fight the Injuns,' said Mrs. Boddington, "'or the Mexicans, or the English, maybe. "'Anything that comes handy.' "'But we hain't no quarrel with the English, nor nobody, have we? "'I thought we was done fightin' for the present,' said Miss Barry, "'in a disturbed tone of voice. "'Well, s'posin' we be,' said Mrs. Boddington. "'Somebody might give us a slap, you know, when we don't expect it, "'and it's best to be ready.' "'And so, Evan Knowlton'll be one of them that has to stand somewhere with his musket to his shoulder, "'and look after a lot of powder behind him all the while. "'Do tell, if it takes four years to learn him to do that,' said Miss Babbage, the doctor's sister. "'The Knowltons is a very fine family,' remarked Miss Gunn. "'If the outside made it,' said Mrs. Boddington, "'don't they cut a shine when they come into meetin', though? "'They think they do. "'It takes all the boys' attention off everything,' said Mrs. Flandin, who was an elderly lady herself. "'And the girls,' added Mrs. Starling. But what more might have been said was cut short by Miss Barry's crying out that here was the minister coming. End of chapter 1